Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Mark Levinson. Mr. Levinson is an economist, historian, and journalist specializing in economic and business issues. He's a former finance and economics editor for The Economist and has written for publications including the Harvard Business Review, Foreign Affairs, and the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of six books, the most recent of which is An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Post-War Boom and the Return of the Ordinary Economy. Mark Levinson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. You know, your, your most recent book covers a lot of ground, uh, the global economy over basically the last 70 plus years. And uh, I'm sure it must have been a major undertaking to write. And so I'm wondering what prompted you to take up such a, an enormous topic? I've read uh, a lot of the history of the last 70 years, uh, and that there, there's a disconnect. Uh, many people have written about uh, the cultural changes of this period, the cultural ferment of the uh, 1960s, of the cultural conservatism of, of later periods. Um, many people have written about the politics of this period, uh, Thatcher, Reagan, and so forth. Uh, and, and, of course, there have been many, many books about diplomacy and the international uh, developments of the period, the rise and fall of the Iron Curtain and uh, other very significant international events. Uh, I've felt that many of these books have missed what is really essential background to this period, which is the underlying economic situation uh, around the world. We went through a period roughly from 1948 to 1973 when the world economy prospered in a way it has never prospered before or since. And then we've been through a period since 1974 in which economic growth has been much slower than it was previously, not just in the United States, but in many countries around the world. And that really underlies many of the political and social developments uh, others have written about, but I felt that part of the story was really being missed. So I've really tried to offer a different way of approaching the history of the post-World War II period. Now, you mentioned that that period 1948 to 1973 was, well, you know, extraordinary. And so the, the first question that comes to mind, obviously, is what made it so special in your view? This was a time of really unprecedented economic growth, not just in one country, but in all of the advanced economies and many of the developing economies. Of, over this 25-year period, the world economy grew at an annual rate of almost 5%. Now, a 5% growth rate means that incomes double in the space of uh, about 15 years. Wow. People can feel themselves getting wealthier very, very quickly. You, people know from one year to the next that they are better off. And people felt that during this period in their living conditions, their homes, uh, their, the things they were able to afford for themselves, the educations that their children could receive. All of that was 
was really a development of the first quarter century after World War II. And then after 1973, those improvements in living standards slowed down a lot. They didn't stop by any means. We're not in a no-growth world. But growth slowed to the point that people have not felt themselves getting better uh, from year to year as they did mm -hmm. in the previous period. And my argument, frankly, is that this underlies a lot of the political dissatisfaction that we have evident in the world today. People want that feeling that government is helping to make their lives better, and this isn't happening fast enough to be satisfactory to the voters. Right. So why did this happen in the first place? I mean, what, were, what do you see as the factors behind what was a truly uh, amazing surge in growth over this period? Certainly, right at the beginning of the period, uh, there was a lot of reconstruction from World War II. No question about that. But more generally, what, what underlay the very rapid growth was uh, an improvement in productivity. Just to give your, your listeners a very brief primer, uh, economic growth really comes out of two things. Uh, one is population growth. Okay, you have more people, the size of the economy expands. The other is productivity growth. Productivity is basically the efficiency with which we use resources, labor, capital, natural resources. And, and productivity is really the key factor in long-term economic growth. While a government can do things in the short term to give the economy a little boost, okay, it can cut taxes or it can spend more money, over the long run, productivity is what mattered. And in the post-war period, we had productivity growth as never before. Uh, there were a number of reasons for this. One is we had a, a lot of underutilized resources around the world. If you think back to the post-war period, again, the late 1940s, all over the world, there were millions upon millions of people who were working farm fields by hand. Okay, this is a very, very low productivity activity. Uh, people forget that in the United States at the end of World War II, we actually had 3 million mules on U.S. farms. Wow. So moving workers out of low productivity farm jobs to much higher productivity factory jobs where they were working with um, what was at the time modern equipment automatically improved productivity in the economy. Uh, an another important factor was uh, education. Uh, at the end of World War II, there were many countries in which the average education was about six years of schooling in the United States. It was a bit more, but not a whole lot more. And spending by governments helped raise education levels quite rapidly. Higher education, better worker training means that people are able to do more complicated jobs, are able to produce more in each hour of work. And then we had some very important transportation improvements after World War II. Uh, again, uh, during the wartime and after, in the United States and in most other countries, uh, roads were typically two-lane roads with lots of stops and lots of traffic, and it was slow to get around. We built the interstate highway system in this country. And what that meant was that manufacturers could sell to a much larger market area because they could deliver the goods across a wider area. Workers had a lot more choices of jobs because it was easier to travel to um, an employer that might be a distance away from home. 
And these things led to very, very rapid growth in productivity. So that was really a, a unique experience, and we took advantage of it. That rapid productivity growth in the post-war period is what made the economy grow so quickly, and it's what made people's incomes rise so rapidly. Mm-hmm. So why, why did this end? Uh, I mean, was there something sudden that happened, or did it gradually come about, or, 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 or what exactly, do you think? Well, there are two stories here. Uh, there's what people thought had happened and what actually happened. Okay. Uh, 1973, the end of 1973 is when this period of rapid economic growth came to an end. Now, 1973 was the year of the first oil embargo. Right. Uh, Egyptian and Syrian armies invaded Israel. The Arab oil producers supported uh, Egypt and Syria. Uh, They uh, boycotted oil shipments to the United States, to the Netherlands, to several other countries. We had gasoline lines uh, all over the uh, advanced economies. The price of oil doubled. And people associated the oil crisis with the sudden slowdown in economic growth. Right. Well, the oil crisis was over by 1974. Okay, it turned out that the shortage of oil was pretty temporary. And by... April or May of 1974, six months after it started, the the first oil crisis was history. But the world economies did not bounce back. The growth never returned to the level it had been until the end of 1973. Unemployment rates never returned to that level. And the reason was that the rapid productivity gains of the post-war period were over. When we looked at this retrospectively, we could see that actually – productivity growth fell dramatically and did not regain its previous heights. And and it was this decline in productivity growth, not the oil crisis, that really led to economic growth slowing all around the world. Right. So was there, do you think there was anything we could have done to either prevent the end of this period of, of really strong growth or at least to make those good times last a bit longer? The argument in my book is that the good times were actually an exceptional time. I refer to them in my title as an extraordinary time. We like to think of that as normal. Everybody loves the idea that the economy is growing very rapidly. Sure. Unemployment is low, that our incomes are improving year by year, that we're feeling wealthier. People would like that feeling to continue. But that's really quite unusual. If you look across the long sweep of history, in most times and in most places, economies grow fairly slowly. You do have these spurts of very rapid growth, and they go on for a while, but that's not the norm, and there's really not much that one can do to keep them going. You know, now some people, I guess, it would hear the title Extraordinary Time and think 1948 to 1973 would say, well, I don't know how extraordinary it was. Now, if you were a white male, maybe, but things weren't so hot. If you were a, a woman or a minority, would you agree with that assessment? Uh, we're speaking here about the United States, I, I gather. Um, um, sure. Yes. And uh, I would make a couple of comments. Uh, things weren't so hot if you're a woman, perhaps uh, 
in the workplace, if you're concerned about wage discrimination, employment discrimination, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, in terms of uh, living standards, uh, women were doing uh, in their families were doing very well. Things were much easier. Okay, women were were uh, living in homes where they had much better access to uh, uh, appliances, for example, to do work that had formerly involved human drudgery. Right. Uh, the work that they were doing if they held paid employment was often less onerous than it would have been in a previous time period. So they were not doing well if you're thinking about that from the point of view of pay equity. Mm-hmm. But if you're thinking about it from the point of view of living standards, they were doing all right. And I would say that the same was true, actually, for uh, many minorities. I mean, think, for example, of the condition of many African Americans in the United States uh, after World War II. They were living as sharecroppers on farms in the South. Right. This was not a prosperous existence. Most of them had no electricity. Uh, they had very poor living conditions. Uh, not to mention often uh, dangerous and threatening living conditions. Mm-hmm. They were displaced from that. Okay, They were essentially driven out of sharecropping by automation. And yes, it was in a certain sense traumatic. On the other hand, they in many cases ended up with industrial jobs in the north. And they had much higher living standards than they would have had had they continued to live in the south. So I, I think that the gains of this period were pretty widespread. That, again, is a a unique situation. Uh, It's not always the case that prosperity is widely shared, but that was generally the case in the quarter century after World War II. Right. Now, uh, you talk uh, in the book about the the rise of conservative governments in the 1980s, particularly Ronald Reagan in the United States and Margaret Thatcher in the UK. And so I was wondering if you could explain sort of how that fits into this story. Sure. The conventional wisdom, which you read in many books, is that the rise of conservatism uh, really was the result of a protracted attempt by various interests to bring more market-based ideas into the public dialogue. You had think tanks and you had intellectuals who were touting conservative ideas And finally, they got taken up by people like Reagan and Thatcher. Well, that's really only a a part of the story here. The reason that the public was welcoming conservative governments is that the governments that had persisted through the post-war period were no longer able to deliver the goods. By and large, the governments in the uh, post-war period were... You might call them social market kind of governments, Mm -hmm. uh, social democratic sort of governments. They believed in in market economics, but with a very significant role for government and with an expanding welfare state. People liked that kind of government because it helped improve their living conditions. It provided health care, it provided pension benefits, it provided unemployment benefits and so on. So it made life more secure. And it was argued that this kind of government was responsible for the remarkable economic performance. You know, many countries went actually a quarter century without a single recession. Wow, yeah. And governments claimed the credit for that. Sure. And then after 1973, 
these governments could no longer deliver prosperity. They could no longer deliver the rising living standards to the extent that people expected. So naturally, voters started looking around for alternatives. They were much more receptive to other ideas. Uh, I'll just give you one example. There had been discussion in the United States uh, really since the 1950s about deregulation. Uh, The deregulation movement went nowhere in the United States. There was no particular reason to deregulate. This was an idea in, in search of a reason for being. Right. Well, in the 1970s, once the economy slowed down, all of a sudden people got interested in deregulation again. Maybe, they said, maybe deregulation can help us get out of this problem. Maybe deregulation can help deliver faster economic growth. So I emphasize the role of the economic slowdown uh, in this uh, political turn to the right. And it's important to note that this political turn to the right was not an American phenomenon or a British phenomenon. It happened all around the world. It happened from Scandinavia to Japan. And I think it happened for the same underlying reasons. Right. Now, how successful then were conservative governments in reversing this slowdown? I I remember in in my previous life as a conservative, I was a a huge fan of Ronald Reagan. And and my conservative friends and I were absolutely positive that, you know, through Ronald Reagan's leadership, we we broke the back of inflation. We reformed the tax code and and we cut wasteful, growth slowing government regulations. And that kind of led to a new uh, a new rise in prosperity and mourning in America and all that sort of thing. So so do you think we were wrong about this or, 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 or what's your assessment? The conservatives who took power uh, around the world uh, in the, the late 70s and early 1980s uh, had a very similar uh, toolkits. They preached uh, a set of ideas that they contended would improve productivity by freeing up the private economy. Uh, They would lead to uh, greater investment by business, which would raise productivity, which would raise living standards. And so let me just give you a list of some of these ideas that that were touted as uh, accomplishing this. Uh, I mentioned deregulation. Right. We had the idea that monetarism would do this. Monetarism meant that the central bank should adopt a a role, excuse me, a rule for uh, the growth of the money supply and simply stick to it. Mm -hmm. And it was argued that that would let them, uh, the private sector, have a sense of security about what was going to happen in the future and lead to uh, a great improvement in uh, productivity. Um, Simply reducing the size of government, get government out of the way. Uh, balancing the government budget, privatizing state-owned companies, uh, reducing marginal tax rates. Uh, Some people even advocated going back on the gold standard, tying currencies to gold as a way of providing economic stability that would uh, somehow lead to higher productivity. And governments tried various combinations of these things in various countries. None of them succeeded in raising productivity growth. And that was certainly true uh, with the uh, Reagan revolution, as it was called, in the United States. It was true with Thatcher in the UK that uh, there was not this great spurt of productivity that had been promised. And we did not see a return to the very rapid economic growth 
of the period between 1948 and 1973. Right. You know, it, it almost sounds like, like you're saying that both conservatives and liberals really overestimate the power of government policy to, to, to affect productivity and economic growth. I mean, is that, it, it, would, would you agree with that? I think that's absolutely correct. But I, but I suppose we we both want we on both sides want to believe that because they'd like to think that we that this period of what what you uh, view as extraordinary growth could be the norm essentially and and you're saying that that's just unfortunately not the case. That's right. No. Excuse me. This is correct. Both liberals and people from all across the the political spectrum like this idea that they know the way to make economies grow faster. Right. They know how to solve this productivity problem. The other guys got the wrong ideas about how to do it, but their ideas will make it happen. And what I'm saying is that uh, political leaders have actually very little ability to affect productivity growth in any kind of meaningful time frame or in any kind of predictable way. Right. We know, for example, that investment in education, creating a more educated, better trained workforce will be good for productivity over the long run. How fast that will happen, you can't predict that. How strong that effect will be, it's probably going to be pretty small. It's not a bad thing. I think education is a great thing, but it's not going to turn slow productivity growth into fast productivity growth right. and, and suddenly make the economy soar. Right. So we, we have all kinds of people from all ideologies who agree on nothing except for the idea that their own ideas are going to <laughs> yeah. solve this problem. Yeah. Now, do you think that slower economic growth and rising economic inequality are connected in some way? The connection between slow economic growth and rising economic inequality is this. When the economy is growing rapidly, everybody's boat can rise. Okay? Uh, just you know, do, do the math. Okay, if the economy on average is growing 4% a year, then, okay, so some people's incomes will grow at 5% and some people's incomes will grow at 3%, but we're all feeling better. All of our incomes are rising. Do the same math with an economy that's growing at a percent and a half a year. Okay, well, now somebody's income is growing at 3%, somebody's income is growing at zero, okay? The, the effects of unequal distribution become much more pronounced when the economy is growing slowly because some people are getting nothing or are even going backward. Right. And, and I think that is a much more serious problem in a slow growth economy than in a, an economy that's growing rapidly. Right. Now, there are some, uh, particularly on the left, who would say that we shouldn't necessarily expect uh, a rise in productivity, at least future rises in productivity, to lead to similar benefits uh, or to, to decrease economic inequality because the political system has essentially been rigged in favor of the of, of the 1%, that labor has been basically cut off at the knees and so forth. I mean, would you do you think there's something to that critique? Uh, I think that it is true that the question of, of distribution is to a certain extent separate from the, the question of how quickly the economy is growing. Okay? So it's certainly possible that you have an economy that's growing fairly rapidly and the gains are not being widely shared. Uh, I, there's some research uh, over the past couple of years suggesting that economies that are more equitable generally have 
higher growth rates. I think there's something to that. So uh, I think that, uh, that there is definitely an, an issue there. On the other hand, if the economy is not growing rapidly, there just isn't that much to share. And I think that many of the people who raise the complaints about the, the one percenters lose sight of that fact. Uh, in a slow growth economy, the, the gains are just not that large and we're not going to be able to raise people's incomes rapidly. Okay, so in other words, sort of that the primary job should be increasing the size of the pie, and then after that you can think about how the slices are distributed. Uh, I'm not going to say which the one should happen before the other, but I'm saying that if the pie isn't increasing, it's very hard to give people bigger slices. Gotcha. Now, do you think there's anything that we can do to kind of spur another uh, another of these eras of extraordinary growth? I mean, let's say you're advising President Trump and, and Congress. Is there anything that you would suggest that they do or not do or stop doing? Extraordinary growth comes largely out of innovations in the private sector. And that's what makes it so difficult for politicians because the rate at which these innovations come along and the rate at which they affect uh, business practices is quite unpredictable. We had in this country, for example, a lot of investment in uh, computerization uh, and communications in the 1950s and 1960s we saw the results in productivity in the 1990s. We had several years of faster productivity growth in the late 1990s. Uh, in, in some work I did uh, on the development of uh, container shipping, this happened in the 1950s and 60s, and it started to change business patterns in a big way in the 1980s as businesses began to globalize their production. So there are long lags here, and they're unpredictable lags. It's quite possible that we have other innovations coming down the road that will lead to great productivity gains. Uh, you can see things like artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality. Will those kinds of technologies uh, filter through the business sector and, and lead to higher productivity? Perhaps they will. I don't think we can predict that. Right. All we can say is that they really haven't done so to this point. What can government do about this? What government can do is pretty much on the margins. Yes, it can put some more money into scientific research. I think that's a great thing. It can promote worker training and education. But here we're talking about tenths of a percentage point in productivity growth. Right. The real gains from productivity are, are going to come out of the private sector unpredictably and there's just no button anybody in Washington can push to make that happen. Right. You know, we you mentioned shipping containers, and, and I, I really wanted to, to bring this up. We've been talking about your your most recent book, but you actually wrote a previous book that focused on, of all things, shipping containers. And so I think it's fascinating. I was wondering if you could explain uh, why shipping containers were I don't were book worthy. I mean, what, what what did you see that made them so important? Uh, sure, I'm happy to do that. The This is really a story of how a, a fairly simple-sounding invention, uh, a metal box, uh, helped change the world economy. Uh, before shipping containers came along uh, in the 1950s domestically and then in the late 1960s internationally, it was quite expensive to ship goods long distances. 
Uh, shipping was uh, unpredictable. There were lots of losses from theft and damage. And many goods cost so much to ship that it wasn't worth shipping them around the world. Uh, the shipping container reduced the cost of shipping internationally. It led to much more reliable scheduled shipping service. And that made it possible and practical for manufacturers and, and retailers to extend their supply lines around the world. So my argument is that uh, without the shipping container, globalization would not have been possible. Wow. I guess the shipping container is one of those just everyday things that now now we just assume they're always they always were there in some way. And it just seems strange to think of a world before shipping containers. I think that's right. Uh, before shipping containers, you had thousands and thousands of workers in every major port uh, loading goods onto ships, box by box and barrel by barrel. This was just a very expensive, time-consuming process. And uh, the shipping container made it possible to do this much more easily. Uh, my book, in case your listeners are interested in this, is called The Box. And uh, it's really not a maritime book. It's a book about how this uh, seemingly simple invention was developed and what the uh, economic after effects were. Right. And we'll put a link to, to that and to your most recent book on the website. Both are definitely very much worth uh, uh, checking out. And, you know, I wanted to ask you one final question. Aside from your books, what would you recommend? What might you recommend to listeners who are interested in getting a better understanding of these sort of uh, economic forces, you know, what what, do you, what would you say they should read or watch or, or, or listen to? Really, any recommendations you might have based on your experience? Oh, gee, that's a, a tough question <laughs> here. Uh, I, I have uh, recently uh, finished uh, Sebastian Malaby's book on Alan Greenspan, which I find a, a really good introduction to central banking. Uh, there are a lot of silly things said about central banking and, and what central bankers do, and I think this is a good uh, antidote to that. Uh, I'm um, reading it at the moment uh, a couple more books on the financial crisis, uh, which, uh, again, this is uh, the, the crisis is, has come and in some ways gone, but it's still with us. Uh, I think as a, a general comment, what I would say is that it's the case in the United States that we tend, uh, A, to think about government having a lot more power to affect the economy than it really does, and B, we tend to look at ourselves a lot. And so I think it's really helpful to uh, find books that provide a more international context mm -hmm. uh, to economic goings-on. Because many of the underlying economic issues, uh, the, the productivity slump that I discussed, uh, the uh, decline in income growth in, in many countries, these are, these are global issues. They aren't just American issues. And if we think that they're due simply to the U.S. tax system or to the Affordable Care Act or something like that, we're really misunderstanding what's going on in the world. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh so if, if you're interested in keeping up with uh, with Mark Levinson, you can follow him at his website, which is marklevinson.net, and we'll have a link to it on our show notes for the episode and, as I mentioned, also uh, those books. Mark Levinson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. It's been great to be with you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. 
If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. And if you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.